get some perspective. Maybe that's perspective with a colleague within your company, but also if you can get some perspective from someone who is in a similar role, but not inside of your org, right? Doesn't have the kind of blinders on that you might have. I think so many mistakes I could have bounced back from more quickly or avoided if I had just had more people to feel like I could be vulnerable with. Hey, welcome to the show. I am your host, Andrew Kaplan. And in this show, I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams about the hardest parts of their job to normalize the challenges that come in these early stage growth roles and explore frameworks, mental models, and ways for folks to navigate when these situations happen. My guest today is amazing. It is Claire Sullentrop. Claire is the co-founder of ForgetTheFunnel.com. She also just published a book, Forget the Funnel, that we will link in the show notes. And Claire's been in and around growth since 2014. She specifically helps early stage SaaS companies go from pre-revenue to multi-millions in ARR by leveraging customer insights to fuel marketing and growth programs. And she's spoken extensively and internationally about the impact of customer-led approaches to growth. She's delivered presentations and workshops and done fractional roles for founders, VC-backed teams, enterprise executives, and a whole bunch of other folks in between. And I was excited to have Claire come on the show for a few reasons. One, I have been a fan for many years. Claire and I actually worked together way back in probably 2016 when she consulted with our Wistia growth team on leveraging jobs to be done to improve our onboarding and activation flows. And I have followed her and been a fan ever since. But what I was really excited was to hear about some of the moments in her career that have shaped her, some of the challenging moments. And she shared a lot of those in our conversation. She talked about the transition from being a marketer to taking more of a cross-functional and product type ownership and accountability in her role. She also talked about the challenges of transitioning from being an IC to taking on more ownership and accountability across the business and leveraging other resources. And we also talked about how tough it is to increase your influence when you work at these early stage companies and you're lacking mentorship. It's a ton of things that I think will be interesting and relevant to the audience. Let's jump right in. I think you're going to love this convo. This episode of the show is brought to you by Mad Kudu. As a former head of growth, my team spent insane amounts of time trying to identify the accounts that were likely to purchase or upgrade based on their behavioral signals. And our business intelligence team spent weeks and weeks analyzing our touch points and trying to predict if an account was likely to convert or not. It was a long and complicated process in the mix of sales-led and product-led motions and touch points made it way harder. Madkudu's revenue automation intelligence helps SaaS companies cut through the noise and brings more focus to revenue and growth teams by predicting and prioritizing the right revenue-generating actions. They help SaaS companies with hybrid go-to-market models, like the ones I've worked at, understand what the data is telling us and what to do with it. If you're interested in learning more, check out madkudu.com value. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials, getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value, creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website, and letting people play with them, click around, and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans, and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Nevatic. 
Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos, and they're offering a free trial exclusively for delivering value listeners. Go to novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. I'd love to know what initially led you into growth. You've been in the space for a while. How did you first get started? Like probably many people in growth, I fell backwards into it. When I was in university, no one was going to school for growth. I went to school not knowing what I wanted to do and ended up getting a very generic, all-encompassing like multimedia degree. And then I also minored in journalism and did a lot of broadcast radio stuff. So I knew I was going to be generally in the communication space, then fell backwards into tech. So to abbreviate it, I will say that I started a super cringe blog. What makes it cringe? Hold up. We can't just gloss over that. Well, it was a food blog when everyone was doing food blogs. I thought that I was so good at photography. And it's hard to look at your early work. I've actually heard that's a good sign. If you look at your early work and it makes you cringe, it means that you've had incredible growth. So I view that as like a painful positive. But this blog was really my playground for learning to build an audience, make money on the internet, test things, test content types and channels. And like I wrote an ebook and I made a little bit of money on it. And I was like, that's cool. So starting this blog got me into the world of internet content creation and digital marketing. And then through that, I ended up taking the title was a marketing role, but it ended up being much more of a cross-functional growth role in SaaS. And when I say in SaaS, I literally didn't even know what SaaS meant until like I was working there and I had to Google like, what is SaaS? Like, <laughs> it's like I don't know, it's a tech company. I didn't know there was a title for it. Right. And all the acronyms and jargon and all that stuff. It's so intimidating, right? <laughs> yeah. I felt very out of my depth. There were some things tactically that I knew that I was good at. I knew that I was good at customer research. I knew that I was good at content creation. I knew that I was good at writing, whether that was compelling like website copy or in-app copy or whatever it might be. But the larger ecosystem of how the business ran, that was the part that was very like, what the heck am I doing? And what was the job? Can you share the company and the title? Yeah. And some of the stories I've shared are actually related to my prior career, which was more in marketing within like the entertainment industry. But this particular role I'm describing is really how I got into SaaS or the tech and startup world with Calendly. So they were a baby company. It was the CEO, a CTO, and then I was hired as the director of marketing. What I didn't know at the time was growth skill set, but totally new to that world of the SaaS landscape. So major turning point in my career going from one field to another with the marketing and growth trend trailing across. Do you feel like it came naturally or was it a struggle to pick up all the acronyms and learn about the impact of your work? Tell me a little bit more about those early days and how you got going. It was very overwhelming. Looking back, I was young. So some of the aspects that made it overwhelming were just plain and simple, like lack of perspective, lack of experience, and therefore lack of knowing how to navigate a lot of the day-to-day. And I know that many people in their early marketing or growth roles can relate to that. What made it extra challenging was that the company was early stage. And so it wasn't as if there were a lot of peers that I could mind share with, which leads to something I'm sure you see in your coaching work all the time, this feeling of isolation and like, am I the problem? Am I making mistakes? Am I doing things wrong? Being in a bit of an echo chamber was very challenging. Yeah, it still happens all the time. I talk to folks all the time that struggle with this. And I felt like... When I was coming up, it was even more so because there was just even less content out there around what to do and the playbooks. And a lot of the companies that had roles like this were new and really they didn't even have names to them. 
I remember working at Wistia in 2015. It was freemium with no sales team. And I used to call it e-commerce for SaaS. Now we call it product-led growth and there's all these frameworks and accepted terminology, but there was none of that back then. And so a lot of times I just felt like I was making it up. And once in a while, I'd talk to someone else who was also making it up and you trade ideas, but it's really lonely and it's hard and you can get in your head for sure. Yeah. What you just brought up about there being more foundational resources for folks who are in this growth role, an additional layer of the struggle when I was in-house was I came on board to help company transition from like an open beta to a true freemium product with the paid plans included. And because the product had been very successful and had gained a lot of traction through its inherent use, they really didn't have an acquisition. There were no problems driving traffic or new visitors, new signups which made my role very squishy because I had assumed I'm going to come in here. I'm going to do the typical demand gen things. I'm going to do the awareness level marketing activities that are required at an early stage company. And when that wasn't the pain we were feeling, a lot of my work actually from a tactical perspective ended up being cross-functional product-led growth work. So optimizing the onboarding experience to increase free to paid, expanding accounts from one user to a team, like at the time, the company was in a building that was dedicated to early to like scale stage SaaS companies. And so I had other marketing managers and directors to talk to, but they weren't doing that work. They were managing ad spend and they were in this more traditional marketing role. And so that led even more to me being like, I have no idea what this is. Anyway, what you were describing about those early days at Wistia like definitely resonates. When I chat with folks, I often talk to marketers who are really interested in taking on more product growth opportunities. Was that hard for you? Did you get pushback from the product team when you started to inch closer into their channel? The more the company grew, that wall came up a little bit. And that's not to speak poorly of the product team and the folks on the product team by any means. In the really early days, everyone kind of has their hands in everything. At the get-go, no, that wasn't really a challenge. But then as the company became more structured, there was more of a, well, marketing lives over here and product lives over here. I didn't have the confidence to navigate that in a mature way. It was challenging without knowing like how to do business politics. That's a huge part of it. Learning how to suggest things in a way that brings other people along and doesn't just make the wall higher because it's really easy to suggest something and someone else says, well, I'm not sure about that. And rather than use that as the starting point to a longer term conversation, you go, I'll stay in my lane and I won't share my ideas anymore. Totally. That's why the coaching that you provide and having access to other sounding boards, other folks who've been in that role is so vital. If I had known that was a thing and could seek out people experiencing those problems, it would have been a lot easier to be like, okay, let me bring this back to the team and pitch it this way rather than that way. Here's how we bring people along. I just didn't have that exposure to the right practitioners. I didn't either. And that's one of the challenges that I think folks, maybe as a talented IC, start to take on a little bit more responsibility. One of the other things that I see a lot of times during that transition is a lot of times it's really easy to get too far in the weeds and not be able to pull back and have that higher level story and perspective and conversations. I'm curious if that resonates with you. Yes. Yeah, so one of the stories that I had in mind for this conversation was not within the tech world. It was within my more traditional marketing career prior to tech. And the place I worked for was an agency. And I come in and on my first day, my new boss hands me this stack of papers and is like, here you go. It was very much a baptism by fire type of 
onboarding. It wasn't like, here's the department you work in. Here's the context. It was like, get in, start doing the work. It was very, very execution focused. I was only a couple of years out of school. And so I didn't know how work was supposed to work. So because of that, the way that I operated was incentivized to focus on execution. There was not a super strong culture of 360 reviews or how is your current performance tracking to this larger quarterly or annual goal. We were pretty much heads down on implementing. And I'm sure this will resonate with a lot of folks listening, right? To this day, if you work at an early stage company, seed stage, early series A, this is how it feels. The company's moving. Things are moving very quickly. You show up. Your job is to plug in to a certain part of the machine and the machine's running fast. You got to start running fast too. Yes, it's super real. And again, lack of perspective. When you haven't seen how it works in any other org, you're like, okay, you just assume that that's the default. I don't know. I want to say about a year or so into my time there, the leadership team was calling different individual employees in for a formal performance review, but I think it was maybe their first attempt to implement something like that. And so during this review, I got this feedback that I focus too much on the day-to-day and I don't pick my head up to think about how could we be working smarter and not harder? How could we be thinking more about our work and how it ties to goals? And I was really hurt by this because I didn't know that that was even an expectation. Again, being young, I totally took it all upon myself. And while I do, looking back, think that was a hard lesson to learn and it was an important lesson to learn. With perspective, I can also see how the way that the company was running, it was a combination of larger context that I was missing and being so new in that role and not knowing that there was anything else beyond plugging in and like getting the day-to-day shit done. So you get this feedback. What goes through your head in the moment? So you're caught off guard, but what are you thinking? Are you thinking about quitting? Are you thinking about screw this person? I'm going to prove him wrong. What's happening? I would say two combined emotions come up. Number one is, fuck, am I going to lose my job? If I lose my job, then what happened? Like there was that train of thought combined with fuck this place. We all have a different level of tolerance for situations we're not happy in. And so it was not long after that I was like, I'm looking for another job. I stayed at the place for a while. But I do remember that being a moment where I was like, I don't think I can take this. If this is what it's going to be like, then there's got to be something else out there. And there was. It's a what's someone supposed to do if they're in that situation and they get that feedback. We can't go back in time. But if you could, given the benefit of the perspective that you have now, what would you do differently? Or what would you advise someone in that situation to do if they get that feedback? Well, I'd super wish I would have had someone like you as a coach in my quarter. So I could be like, what the hell? Is this normal? Am I the problem? I'm sure a core value that you provide is that outside perspective. If I could go back in time, I wish I had someone I could bring this to to get their thoughts on what was really going on. I grew up in the Midwest and then I went to school on the East Coast. I got a scholarship that made it roughly the same as staying in state. So I'm out there. I have just recently graduated college. I'm in this job. I also graduated from college a semester early. So all of my university friends were still in university, finishing their degrees, totally different mindset. My closest friends from home, also completely living a different life. So my day-to-day friends were my work friends. I really had no one to turn to to be like, I need a gut check on this. How do I react? As I look back and you connect the dots along your different experiences, lack of external perspective was something that really had me struggling for like a very long time. And then when I ended up leaving my funnel in-house role and and building more of my own network, I realized like, man, this was super, super missing this whole time. I think that's really common. It's really hard to be vulnerable early in your career because you think something's broken and you just think everyone else has got it and you don't know who to be vulnerable with. 
at my first job, I was an analyst at this big ad agency called Digitas in Boston, like Madman, huge agency. And I got paired with a mentor who was like 45 SVP. He was a horrible mentor for me. You need someone who's like a couple steps ahead, not 20 steps ahead. So I couldn't really be vulnerable with this guy either, but that's what you're talking about. Find someone you can be vulnerable with who's a few steps ahead. Yes, 100%. That reminds me of something my business partner, Georgiana, and I talked about early on in our partnership. Georgiana lives in Montreal and her entry into the tech scene started when she got on Twitter and began meeting folks working in tech in Montreal. She organized a women in tech networking group via meeting these people on Twitter. And then she was in this great in-house job as VP marketing for several years. And while she was in that role, all of her focus was on this one brand. And so when you're focused on one brand, it's really hard to keep your head up. And I remember we ended up meeting like right as we each left our final in-house roles. She was like, I was taking my head up out of the sand. I hadn't checked Twitter in years. I felt like I needed to rebuild my network. So the career growth that you get when you are in-house can sometimes include this risk of losing contact with a lot of the larger ecosystem because you're so focused on your company's day-to-day -day and your team's day-to-day. -day. It's so true. And if you're not careful, your bosses will incentivize that. I got feedback in my career that was like, hey, you can be a workhorse or a show horse, meaning you can either share what you're learning or you can be learning, but you probably don't have time to do both. And I was like, well, I should just be learning and I can always share later. I didn't know at the time, but it's crummy advice. One of the things that you shared earlier, I thought was really interesting. So you talked about making the transition from marketing to growth and learning to increase your influence as part of that, how difficult that is for ICs transitioning into leadership roles. I oftentimes chat with folks who are struggling with that. Maybe they've got an idea, it gets shot down, they've got a strategy, they present it in the wrong way, and all of a sudden they get some negative feedback and then they're in their heads and they're wondering, is it me? Am I meant to do this? Has that specifically ever happened to you when it comes to increasing your influence? Totally. And this goes back to just knowing how the people part of work is supposed to work. So I'm sure you've taken however many different strengths assessments and personality tests. And there's one that I took maybe a year ago. The goal of it was to help you understand like when you're faced with a problem, how do you naturally tackle a problem? And my assessment came back. And what I learned from it was that when I'm faced with an unknown or a problem, I default to research. I learn as much as I possibly can about the thing. Some people are tactical learners. They need to learn by getting in and just feeling it for themselves. I'm very much the person who will read the whole manual first before I touch the thing. So that's not something I ever would have identified about myself without some kind of assessment defining it. But I go back to this early time in growth at which it was very clear that the company I was working with had significant revenue upside opportunity from some minor optimizations on the site. Not an overall visual redesign, but just some basic homepage, features page, pricing page, best practices. Problem was marketing didn't own the website. The website was owned by the product team and the engineering team. It was a totally custom build. And so it wasn't like I could just get in there and be like, I'm going to fix this CTA. I had to like pitch the whole thing and make the business case for getting someone's time to help me with it. I feel like a lot of those PMs really are incentivized to just say no or throw it on the backlog or punt on it. It's super frustrating. It's so hard. And now realizing this as a researcher, what I did to build my case was find all of these statistics showing if we do this, we should see this uplift. Based on best practices, right? Industry benchmarks, that kind of stuff. Is that where you're referencing? Exactly. And I built this like whole document, but I didn't think about the fact that 
not everyone is a researcher. Some people need the one pager. Give me the one pager. How much is it going to cost? How much time is it going to take? And so I'm like deep in this analysis. And my boss is like, we're not doing this. We have no time to do what you're describing. And I was crushed. I had worked so hard on this pitch. I'd done all this work to like show the proof. I know that this will make an impact. I know it's worth whatever amount of time it would have taken. And I was like, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I don't actually know anything. And so what do you do after that? So you're in this meeting. You've got your five-page doc. If he just read it, of course, he would come to the same conclusion, but you get shut down. What happens after that? It makes me so sad for past me that this is how I handled it. I isolated from a number of key people on the team, which did not bode well, of course. With years of experience, I can, number one, see the original mistake and also see how I could have done better and remained integrated with the product team after that. But I felt something is wrong here. My ideas are being shut down. So maybe I'm just not as smart as I think I am. Or maybe I'm not even right for this role. Maybe I should just leave this company. I would be very curious how you have handled similar feedback earlier on. When you're young, it's hard feedback to receive. It's really hard. And a lot of your identity is tied into your professional success or failure, right? That's what you tell your family when you talk to them. How are things going at work when you talk to your friends? Oh, I'm doing this. I'm traveling for work. I'm managing a team. And so when things don't go well, you're like, this is not good. Obviously, it didn't stop you. Why do you think that is? Because you get a hit to your identity. You have this moment. You feel bad about it. But you don't stop. Why not? Once you can like separate yourself from the shittiness of that moment and the hit to your identity, I was like, okay, I approached this thing wrong. I know I'm not stupid. I can see with my own eyes other things I've done within this org and within this product that have led to really important conversion rate increases. So it's not that. Maybe I just need to ride this role out a little bit longer and either as the marketing team increases, make a bigger impact together versus me going it alone balancing marketing and product. So initially it was just getting over the painfulness of that moment and then remaining optimistic that there was still more to learn. I will say both my mom and my dad are entrepreneurs. And so I've always had this inkling that at some point I would no longer be doing in-house work. And this moment honestly pushed me to be like, do I go out on my own? Do I try freelancing for a while? Because this sucks. <laughs> and again, I did say because I did have more I wanted to learn as an in-house employee. But that was a moment that planted one of the seeds that then had me thinking like, I've done this fast thing for a while. I've done this growth thing for a while. Maybe it's time to see if I can be of help across a client base. There was a very long like questioning period <laughs> after that. So because of your family and maybe just the way that you always saw your career shaking out, you just had a vision for yourself that was bigger than this one moment. And so this moment happened and you're like, maybe I'm just ready for the next moment versus feeling like I'm less than or unworthy of or whatever those more negative voices could be. You just plowed through. I love that. What is one piece of advice you would give someone who's in the midst of it right now? They just had this happen to them. Those negative voices are loud. What would you tell them? It's honestly the theme that we have been following through this conversation, which is get some perspective. Maybe that's perspective with a colleague within your company, but also if you can get some perspective from someone who is in a similar role, but not inside of your org, right? Doesn't have the kind of blinders on that you might have. I think so many mistakes I could have bounced back from more quickly or avoided if I had just had more people to feel like I could be vulnerable with. That's great advice. And one of the other things that I'll hear from folks is that they struggle with something. I almost categorize this as the wrong skill set, company culture fit. 
And for context, I used to think company culture was the vibe or the brand. If you've been around a little while, you know it's not that. And for me, really, the culture has to do with company communication norms and decision-making norms. And a lot of times what you find is if you work in growth, your skill set just might not align with the company culture in terms of communication, decision-making. So I'm curious if you've ever been involved in a company where you realize that fit was wrong for you. Yes. And I love that you're separating the idea of culture from ping pong tables or the vibe and the day-to-day and how people operate together. It took me a while to learn that. And working as a consultant and seeing a lot of different companies is really where I was like, this is really what culture is. There was a team I worked with in a fractional director of marketing. It was definitely like a marketing and growth role because we did a lot of product work, but the title was just marketing. The leadership team, a lot of them came very much from like a more corporate consulting background. And something that I realized was the cultures valued the most was having a discussion about everything, which on its face is fine. Like communication is super important. But it was such a synchronous meeting heavy culture that I really struggled to make progress. And there were colleagues who were very talented who were totally fine with that. They really thrive in this always connected kind of environment. Maybe it's because I have more of this startup and scaling teams background, but I much prefer and am more effective working in a primarily async environment that has a lot of rigor around when people do and don't meet. And it was really hard to be effective in this role because I felt like, please don't make me be on this meeting to discuss the last meeting because I just need to do my work. Can you give an example? Is there maybe one story that you can remember of a specific time when there was a meeting that you were just like, why do we need to be discussing this? This seems like a little thing. Why can't we just move faster? To put it in perspective, I think that shift toward needing to have more synchronous communication is just the nature of a scaling organization. It's the function of getting larger, having more decision makers who need to say yes to something before it's implemented. This particular org I was working with, I don't look at what they were doing as the wrong way to do it. But because I'm used to leaner, scrappier teams, I'm used to like the decision is made. Let's go. We're done. There was this one meeting where I met with the head of product. We had this great CX mapping meeting. We're going to create a full lifecycle communications campaign from marketing all the way through to end stage. Now, my next step is to take this map and finalize it so that we can start plotting emails along it. And they were like, no, 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 no. Now we have to take this to leadership and get them to say yes and workshop it around to two or three other departments before we can get there. I was so frustrated because you also have been with orgs as they've gone from young to much more mature. I'd be curious how that's played out for you too. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I've been on both sides. I've been at small companies where it's great. Enough people know, just do it. You have our permission. Culturally, we want you to do that. We're early stage. Speed is an asset. And then I've been at other companies where that changes. You only learn this because you get bit by it. But yeah, I've been in that meeting and I've had to manage the other person who's like, hey, I already made the decision. We talked about it like the three of us. Why do I have to go tell all these other people now? I'm like, you're going to step on a landmine here. This is part of the deal. We have to get these checkpoints from these stakeholders. I think just knowing if you've got a roadshow, that's okay. If you know you've got a roadshow. And what I'm hearing you say is you didn't know you had a roadshow until you're having a roadshow. Exactly. Like I did not know that this planning meeting was the start of a roadshow. I thought it was a planning meeting to start executing. Having just had no experience within a more established several hundreds of employees org, that was a big learning moment. How many more stakeholders do you need to get a yes from as the company matures? I was still in startup land mentally. I'm curious to know what is 
one skill that you would prioritize if you could go back a few years in your career to help present day Claire be more successful? I wish that I had been more comfortable much earlier on at leaning into what I knew I was good at and was smart about and being okay being bad at some other stuff. And I say that from both a tactical perspective, but also as a team member, this continued even after I left my in-house life and I branched out into consulting and freelancing. I was so afraid to say, no, I can't do that or no, I don't know how to do that because I could get fired. I could be thought of as not a great value to the team. This is a huge struggle early on in freelancing. This goes right back to what you said about there not being language around the concept of growth. But in my earliest days, I was positioning myself as having marketing expertise because there wasn't really a word for product-led growth, cross-functional growth. And so I would get potential clients rightfully thinking like, cool, can you run our ads for us? And I'd be like, I should not touch your ads. I will break them. But I was so afraid to say no because I was like, I need money and I need clients. So if I had been able much earlier on to lean into like where I excel, which is positioning, messaging, product marketing, applying that holistically. And from a team perspective, if I had been more self-aware around like how I work well with folks, it would have been so much easier to A, deliver value to the orgs I was working within and B, be comfortable in my own skin. Have you read the book Finder? It's a really short book. There's 20 pages and then there's an assessment. And then based on the results of the assessment, there's a hundred pages of explaining your assessment results. But really, you just need a few of those pages based on what you get, because there's a lot of potential combinations and things. And I bring it up because essentially the outcome or their recommendation is don't try to be good at everything. Find out what you're good at and do those things. Become the best at those things and then find other people that complement those things in your personal life, in your professional life and be the best you, but know what that is. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. That's such a good summary of it. Yes, I wasn't associated with StrengthsFinder, but I have heard that concept before. Zoom in on what you are good at and what does bring you energy and how you work well. And don't try to master like all of your weaknesses, <laughs> which again, just like shit that requires perspective, shit that requires someone to tell you to like chill out. For sure. And I'm also curious to know because of the perspective that you have now getting to work with a variety of different companies and stakeholders, why do you think these roles turn over so often? Why is the tenure of a head of growth, a head of marketing so short? Fantastic question. So I have a couple of theories and I would love to hear yours as well. One theory that I have is because it is so cross-functional, making friends or building alliances is key. You can't get shit done without collaborating with teams who have other objectives that they are being incentivized to focus on. And doing that over and over, especially if the team you're working within doesn't have a history of that. Like if they're trying to implement growth as a new concept within a previously pretty siloed org, that is a recipe for burnout. That's a hard cultural shift to be responsible for. So Gia and I will sometimes work with companies to solve many different growth problems, but one fairly common one is transitioning from a sales-led approach to a more product-led approach. So that's a great scenario where if someone is brought in for growth, they got to be ready to make a lot of friends. And if you don't have someone at the top supporting you on that and reminding everyone that this is happening and it's a priority, it's really hard to own. Another one, she was the head of marketing for Shopify Plus for a very long time. Hannah Abaza also talked about this once on the marketing more specific side of the house. She said in a workshop we did with her years ago, Everyone in the org thinks they know marketing because we're all marketed to. What she was getting at was 
marketing and growth are also roles in which everybody is giving you suggestions. It's a challenge to stay the course in terms of these are the priorities we agreed on. Thank you, everyone, for the ideas. We will add them to the backlog for next quarter. That is another challenge that can be really exhausting. And that's a skill to be learned on its own, right? Like one, the permission to even do that. And then two is creating or joining an environment where you can do that. There are two different things and they both have to be there. Yes. There's a company I'm working with right now. Lovely people. I really enjoy the relationships I have with folks across the team. Their head of sales has so many ideas. Every couple of weeks forgets. This is the strategy we are implementing. We are still in the process of it. We as a group don't have the bandwidth to take on this other great idea that you have. But let's revisit in September. Lovely person. Very hard to stay the course. As you said, if there's not a culture of allowing people to say no and stick to their plans, it can be exhausting. I think that's a really tough thing to encounter. There's a few folks that I'm coaching right now that are just really struggling with this. And they struggle with it because of personal cultural reasons, like family culture. That's just not how they were brought up. They're sort of brought up with a different cultural background. And so it becomes this thing that feels scary to them. And then culturally is hard for them to implement. And it's just a hard thing. I guess I just recognize that. And I agree with that. Yeah. Obviously, it is a nuanced issue, right? People burning out in these roles and leaving. Those are the two that came to mind for me. In the coaching work you've done, surely you've seen so many more. Maybe one other that I see is company model, growth model, marketing model, whatever you want to call it personal skill set misalignment. And this is more at the company level. They're not self-aware enough about how they need to grow or need to market themselves. They don't know who to hire. They create a job description based on how some other person created a job description. They hire someone really talented, but just has the wrong problem-solving skill set for the model that they have. The person realizes it a couple months in, but it's too late. That's one of the ones that I see a lot. To be a marketing or growth leader, first of all, you shouldn't have a growth leader probably at a sales-led company, but if you're making the transition from sales-led to PLG, that's a totally different job. If you're not really aware of how your company grows, it's really hard to find the right fit. If you don't hire the right fit, it's really tough to be successful long-term. So that's one of the common ones that I'll see. Very astute. I feel like in your coaching work, you're going to end up with a whole rubric of like, okay, is it this problem, this problem, this problem? For sure. And you know what's really crazy is I normally can figure it out in the first hour. You came with all these problems, but really, this is your problem and I'm going to have to tell you that, and then we can figure out what to do. We can make it 10% better, but probably we're not going to be able to make it 80% better, which is what you're really here for. But usually folks are grateful just to know what's going on, and then we can figure out the next moves. I want to thank you for coming on, for sharing your time, for sharing your journey, some of the bumps and bruises on the way. For folks who are listening that want to interact or engage, where should they go? My business partner and our team, we live at forgetthefunnel.com. And we also did just publish a book by the same name, Forget the Funnel. And in it is the growth framework, so to speak, that we use in our consulting with our clients. We also very much wrote it with this particular person in mind, head of growth, who is working very cross-functionally and needs some kind of system to bring everyone along for the ride. So that may also be useful if you want to check that out. And where can they get the book? Is it on your website, on Amazon, on both? Both. So if you go to the site and you go to the book page, there will be a button that takes you to your local Amazon, whatever country you're in. Or if you just go to Amazon, you can find it there. So the one last thing I was going to say that I hope stays in the recording is this subject matter and covering on a podcast is so valuable. I'm really glad you're doing this. Thank you. I feel like it's an important thing to be doing and I appreciate that you came on and shared. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, 
the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.